Please open your Bibles to the 22nd chapter of Luke. If you don't have a Bible, the text is written on the back of this morning's bulletin. The notes also are there to be found. And while you turn there, I thank you for your prayers and encouragements this week. Uh, many of you who were here last week know that I was not in very strong health. Um, you caught me on the downswing by midweek, some antibiotics and doctor's prescriptions that helped turn that around. I'm not fully back, but I'm on the upswing now. So God was faithful. I said last week, God shows his might and his power through our weakness. And Mike Doty came up and said, he sure did. It was amazing. You ended five minutes early. <laughs> I make no promise for a repeat performance, Mike, but I would still appreciate and cover your prayers for strength um, in what is still not feeling fully back this morning. And we'll begin our time by reading Luke 22, verses 54 to 65. Um, this is the beginning of Jesus' trial, um, beginning of his passion. Uh, this text begins with his arrest. Uh, they, they showed up last week to seize him, but here he is taken into custody, as it were. So let's begin by reading Luke 22, 54 through 65. Then they seized him and led him away. And bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they'd kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also is with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Lord God, as we... Uh, turn our attention to this sad text, tale of the spiritual defeats of Peter, his failure of faith, his denial. We are also, um, it's always difficult to see our Lord treated with such contempt, and yet we take courage. Um, he, he is being faithful, even as his disciples around him fall and fail and falter. He is utterly faithful. He is doing your will. And so, Lord God, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might learn how to avoid our faith failing, and that we might see a great and glorious Savior who is steadfast and resolute. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a familiar passage. Peter denies Jesus. We'll look at it in three points. Really, the... the most points could be Peter denying Christ. 
And you may even wonder why I tacked on, you may think tacked on verses 63 through 65. I hope that will become clear shortly. So our text picks up from where we left off last week, which picks up immediately from where we left off last week. You remember Jesus went out to the garden to pray, and he tells the disciples in verse 40 that they themselves ought to pray not to enter temptation. That's what bookends Jesus' prayer in verse 46. Um, he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then the action happens immediately. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and then Judas betrays him. And then our text begins, then they seized him. So it's just nonstop movement. They came, they arrested him. Judas betrayed him with a kiss. Our Lord... um, was, was betrayed. And here again, another of his disciples, another one of these men that he loved and spent three years with, will betray him. And so it begins, point one, Jesus is seized and led away. Whereas last week we saw them come to arrest him. Here it's complete. He's in their custody. He is seized. He is their captive. And they lead him away to the house of the high priest. And here's part of the reason why I selected all of this text to look at this morning, is if you you look at verse 54, um, they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. Look at verse 66, what will begin next week's text. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. So from verse 54 to 65 is in one location. So they lead Jesus to the high priest's house. Some things happen. Then they lead Jesus over to the council. And so that's part of of why we're looking at this as a unit. This is the unit of what takes place at the high priest's house. What's interesting is, for Luke's point, he doesn't tell us anything of Jesus' interaction with the high priest. In fact, as you study the the four Gospels, you'll, you'll learn that there are three Jewish mock trials, if you will. This is the second of the three. And then there's three um, appearances before Roman figures and officials. And Luke's going to pick up with a second one and not even tell us what takes place, which is, which is interesting. I mean, as I was looking through this, okay, they lead him to the high priest's house in 54. In 66, they lead him to the next place. But all we get to know of what happened from Luke's telling, what happened at the high priest's house is all about Peter and all about Jesus' interaction with Peter. So Luke includes this, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, to let us know he has done his historical background and checking, even though he's not interested in the interaction between Jesus and the high priest. We get that from other gospel writers. He is aware that it happened. He wants to put these events in the chronology, but he does want us to know what happened with Peter's denial. He does want us to know what happened with Jesus' interaction with Peter, and he does want us to know about Jesus being mocked and beaten here. So he takes us to the high priest's house with all of the action taking place in the courtyard, all of the action taking place outside of that meeting that Jesus has with the high priest. Because at daybreak, point B, Jesus will be led away to the council. So we're dealing with this as a unit as it's taking place in one place and at one time. And so if Luke frames it that way, then we'll follow suit in our study. So we're at the high priest's house, at his courtyard, literally, when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. So it's the middle of the night. Jesus has already celebrated the Passover this evening with his disciples. He's gone across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. He's prayed. He's been arrested. Now he's taken at night to the high priest's house. Presumably at some point he's going to interview with the high priest. And the camera, as it will, stays in the courtyard, 
It's cold. They light a fire. And they gather together. And it's in this context that Peter denies Christ. It's in this context that Peter denies Christ. And one of the things that's remarkable about this account is Luke in no way tries to let Peter off the hook. If you're trying to start a new religion, and if you're trying to make your, if you're trying to make your original founders you know, great figures, if this is the proto-pope, these are the types of stories you wouldn't include. And if you did include them, you'd, you'd try to at least, you know, get, she was a rather large servant girl, you've got to understand. She was swarthy and... No, there's none of that. There's none of that. Luke throws Peter under the bus completely, completely under the bus. I mean, it, the lack of attention to detail at who these people are is part of what makes them stick out. It's a servant girl in verse 56. In verse 58, someone else. In verse 59, still another. These are unremarkable people. These aren't big, brutish Roman centurions. These are people sitting around a fire waiting to see what happens next. One of the other reasons I think the location might be significant is Luke's already told us that there has been one victim of violence in Jesus' arrest, and who was that? It was the servant, the high priest. Now, yes, Jesus healed him, his ear was put back on, but it's also quite possible that Peter is feeling a little nervous because if anyone's going to remember there was some violence, some swords were drawn, it would probably be Malchus, the high priest's servant, he's in that courtyard. So maybe he feels nervous or intimidated. We don't fully understand that. And so Luke, not going into detail, I don't know how helpful it is to try to psychoanalyze Peter and what's going on. And we, we get one significant detail a little later in our text. So let's just follow the flow of the account of Peter's denial of Jesus threefold, just as um, Jesus predicted, just as um, Jesus predicted. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also is with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now what's also significant about this account is our Lord in this gospel already has said some rather severe and strong things about the importance of confessing him and the severity of denying him. In fact, turn back to Luke 9. We need to try to deal with what to make of this. So in Luke chapter 9, Jesus has just um, been identified as the Messiah. This is where he identifies that, where Peter confesses him, you are the Son of God. And then Jesus identifies he's going to suffer. Verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And then here's the key text. 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, most definitely, Peter here is ashamed of Christ and his words. Most definitely. Turn to Luke 12. Uh, This isn't the only place in Luke's gospel where Jesus gives strong warnings of the dangers of public denial. We need to factor these things in. Luke has already told us these things. So Luke, I think, expects us to wrestle with this. So in Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 9, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. That's exactly what Peter is guilty of here. So turn back to Luke 22. One of the questions we've got to wrestle with is what do we make of our Lord's statements? Were these little overly dramatic statements? Jesus just said that to sort of put some fear into his people, but he didn't really mean it. Where's something else going on? I'll give you my short attempt at, at it is this. I think Jesus' statements are true. The warnings are dire. These are not one-time condition statements, as if you ever were to deny Christ, you ever to buckle under pressure, you're done, game, set, match. Rather, you can't not remain and abide there. And then the, the record of the New Testament, as we go into Luke's sequel and Acts, shows Peter exactly changing, repenting, turning again, publicly confessing Christ, being arrested, being beaten, being released, and rejoicing at being counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. So the simple point is, if what you are is a person who denies Christ under pressure, I think those warnings apply. And what matters is the shepherd shepherds and molds and works on you. You you can't remain there. You can't remain a person who does that and have any confidence. Yet praise God for this example. It's not an absolute ironclad, no-exception policy. Peter denies Jesus grievously. He will go on to lead the early church, write the New Testament books attributed to his name. But we also see the change in character and repentance that comes with it. This is a man who is not abiding and remaining this type of coward. So I think the warnings are severe and real, even though they're not absolute in the sense of, you ever done this once? Okay, you're done. Um, So there's there's hope here, but I I don't want to take away from the severity of our Lord's words. And I think Peter takes what he's done as very severe as well. We see that in his weeping as he goes off. But more of that as we move forward. So look at his first denial. So Peter's got to be sort of conflicted. He doesn't want to be identified clearly, and yet he's cold. And so that fire is inviting, and he draws closer to it. But of course, as he draws closer to the fire, it allows people to inspect him, see him. And so ultimately, Peter's cold Winds out, Peter sat down among them, verse 54. And then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. So we're not entirely sure why they're trying to identify Jesus' disciples. Jesus himself gave us some insight into this when he said that he would be numbered with the transgressors. And so if this man is being arraigned as a notorious criminal insurrectionist, um, then those who are his disciples would also share some of that guilt, perhaps to try to round them up as well. Um, we're not even entirely certain to what end this one identifies Peter. 
What Peter makes clear is he wants nothing to do with that identification. Woman, I do not know him. And here, Peter could have lived up to his bold words. If you remember back in chapter 22, verse 31, where Jesus warned him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demands to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've returned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Not in prison, not in death, in a courtyard with a servant girl. And we've seen the progression of, of, of Peter's overconfidence, his lack of prayer, his, his pride in his own strength. And here, even though it's commendable, Peter is going along, he's following along. Something in him won't let him completely abandon Christ. He follows along to this house. He's, he's doing it in his own strength. And when the servant girl calls him out, afraid of what the others might do if he's unmasked, if he's identified, he denies it to a little servant girl. And again, Luke offers him no excuse. He gives him no protection. This is cowardice. This is fear. This is cringeworthy. Um, it doesn't end there. A little later, someone else, again, notice how nondescript this is. Someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Peter said, man, I am not. So he denies Christ to a woman, denies Christ to a man. And remember again, look, look back at verse 28. Jesus commends the disciples. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. There's a sense, Peter's following along, Peter's with Jesus, but is he staying with, abiding with Jesus in his trials? No, he's not. He's distancing himself from Jesus. He is, he's failing. He's, he's more afraid of what these people might do to him, he's more afraid of what these people might think of him, than he is of what his Lord thinks of him. And in that sense, he's, he's acting like who? The scribes who feared the people. Peter here is a man-fearer. He's afraid of these people. He's afraid of what they will do to him, what they'll say to him, what, they, what, what consequences might happen if he identifies with Jesus. So to protect himself from that shame, from that attack, he, he denies the Lord. And then we get this third interval, and, and Luke adds a detail. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted. And again, Luke is closing out every possible avenue of excuse for Peter. Sometimes when you and I get cornered, we say foolish things. I know with my children that'll happen sometimes. You, you corner them with a question. Hey, did you break that? They'll get scared. No. And you want to give them a moment. It's okay, I want you to think about it because I know sometimes it can be easy for you know, a lie to spring up. But think it through carefully because the next answer you give me is the one we're sticking with. Did you break that? Well, you see, the thing was... Okay, there we go. Good. Um, <laughs> And you know, you, know, you know how that is, and someone corners you with an unexpected question, and you, you say the wrong thing. It's sin, it's, it's wrong, but it's not, a, it's not a lie that you've planned. It's not a lie that you have um, schemed. It's, it's a natural reaction of the sinful heart. And so we might be tempted to say, Peter's sitting there, and this servant girl might have been kind of brawny, who knows? She might have been intimidating or scary, and she, she's not expecting it after all, and so she, you're one of them, and he, no, no, I'm not. 
And then maybe even seconds later, the next guy says to him, uh, you, you must be one of them. No, no, I'm not. And you can think, okay, Peter just had a lapse there for 30 seconds. He had a bad minute or two. No, more than an hour goes by. That detail's significant. This cowardice, this apathy, this failure of faith is not some momentary thing. Peter abides here for a good while, and Luke gives us that detail. After an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also is with him, for he too is a Galilean. So now, perhaps either his dress or the way he speaks has identified him as a Galilean. Jesus spent most of his time ministering in Galilee. He was known as a Galilean. And so, aha, we've got further proof that you are one of his disciples. Peter speaks with his strongest denial, yet, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, While he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And then I want you to get this. This is is a shocking scene. And part of the reason why uh, I include the last uh, three verses, 63 through 65, to this text, I think completes the picture. So here's this courtyard, and, and Peter and this group are huddled around a fire. But somewhere else in the courtyard, or maybe just through the door, is Jesus. He's being detained we're going to see what they're doing to him in just a minute. They're bullying and beating him. And these two scenes connect briefly as our Lord looks and makes eye contact with Peter. The rooster crows. Our Lord turned and looked at Peter. And the penny drops. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And that also gives us some insight, I think, into how Peter did this. Our Lord warned him. Our Lord encouraged him to pray. Our Lord told him, Satan has demanded to sift you. I've prayed for you. You're going to deny me three times. And somehow, in all of this, Peter forgot what Jesus said to him. Peter forgot what Jesus said had said to him. So we're down at Jesus' sorrowful look, point one. Jesus is fully aware of what is taking place. And again, in in a situation where he looks to be the most powerless man in the room, he's being beaten, he's being mocked. One of the things Luke wants us to see is, no, he's, he's, he's in charge. He's in control. Even though he's separated by yards or more from Peter, even though while this is taking place, they're beating and mocking him. Jesus is fully aware of what's going on. He's fully aware of his surroundings. When the rooster crows, he turns and he makes a look at Peter. And what is Jesus doing in that look? I don't think it's an I told you so. I don't think he's rubbing it in. In fact, Luke tells us Peter only remembers what Jesus said, not because the rooster crowed, but because of the look. Jesus, get this, is shepherding Peter from afar. Peter has denied him. Peter has forgotten what he said. And so Jesus, even as he's suffering, and even as he's being mistreated, is still guarding and protecting Peter's faith. I'm going to make eye contact with him so it sinks and so he gets it, so that he grieves, so that he repents and leaves. So here's our Lord shepherding Peter from afar, even as he is being mistreated himself, even as Jesus himself is grieved, point number two here, by Peter's betrayal. He's truly grieved. He's shepherding him. 
Because that look is what's going to cause Peter to remember what the Lord said. That look is going to help bring Peter to repentance. As Jesus looks on him in sorrow, Peter will be shepherded by that look into repentance. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter remembered Jesus' words to him, and he went out and wept bitterly. So our Lord is is still shepherding him, still protecting his faith. And this importance of remembering is something Peter doesn't forget. In fact, turn turn to 2 Peter. Peter recovers from this failure. Our Lord said he would. He says, when you've turned again, or when you've repented, or when you've returned, strengthen your brothers. That is exactly what Peter does do. And in 2 Peter... Peter knows that he is about to die shortly. And he writes this um, in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am still in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may also be able at any time to recall these things. Did you get what he's saying? I want to make, I thought it was good while I'm still breathing to remind you of these things you already know, because it's important for you to keep remembering them. And I've written this letter so that even after I'm dead, you can pick it up, read it, and recall. One of the most important things in the Christian faith is remembering. I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, more often than not, the power of sin in the Christian's life is not the power to cause us to raise our fist up to God and say no. It's the power to blind us into forgetfulness. We simply forget that we're bought with a price. We simply forget there's a living God who sees all. And we buy into this dream that all that matters is right here and what's now in front of me. And we forget Peter forgot all of our Lord's warnings. He forgot our Lord's prediction and acting in that ignorance, which he's culpable for. I mean, the narrative of Luke makes it clear. This guy's been warned and warned and warned. He forgot. Now he remembers. And I think we see that one of the lessons Peter learned is it's important to keep on remembering things. One of the reasons we gather together and our gatherings are vital and why we, is we encourage one another, we remind each other of things. So often what I need to hear are not new truths I've never seen before, but I need to be reminded of truths that I already know, but I'm forgetting. Truths you and I are forgetting. And so our Lord looks at Peter and he remembers. And you can only imagine his sense of shame I I proudly boasted I'd go with him to death. And he goes off and he weeps bitterly. He weeps bitterly. Judas also was sad. And ultimately, as we look to Peter's restoration, it's not due to the man Peter, but to our Lord's prayer and intercession for him. Our Lord prayed for him, interceded for him, Our Lord, even as he's being mistreated, looks, makes eye contact with him as one last act of shepherding. Our Lord is faithful. And because of that, 
Peter will be restored. So now let's look at verse 63 through 65 and see what light they shed on these things. Now the men were holding Jesus in custody or mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? They said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So so I was working through this text. I was wondering, why does Luke put that little paragraph in here? Why, Why does he want us to know that while Jesus was at the high priest's house, this took place? Why does he put it in here? And then I sort of had one of those aha moments. We know that there are a lot of different blasphemies, a lot of different mockings that the soldiers and the people did to Jesus. But Luke only puts one of them in their mouth. Prophesy. Who is it that struck you? Do we not see in this exact text Jesus functioning as a prophet? There's a great irony here. For those with eyes to see... We, reading this text, see Jesus function as a prophet. He predicted, three times you will deny me before the rooster crows. Peter does exactly that. The rooster crows, Jesus makes eye contact with him. In the context, because what's in verse 63 to 65 is what's taking place in all these hours there at the high priest's house. So it's not like these things happened to Peter, then this other stuff happened. Luke's introduction in 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they are beating him. This is the type of stuff that was typifying Jesus' time at the high priest. And so in a context where they're mocking him, oh, you think you're some type of a prophet. Okay, which one of us hit you? We, the reader, get to see this is indeed a prophet and he's functioning as one. This, I mean, I just, I'm just picture the irony of while they're saying this, prophesy. Jesus hears the rooster crow, and he looks over, and he makes eye contact with Peter. And Peter sees his eyes, and he drops his eyes, and he storms out, weeping in tears. Jesus is absolutely functioning as Israel's prophet, even as they mock him about this. In fact, turn back to Deuteronomy 18. One of the messianic claims is that the Messiah would be the great prophet. This is predicted as early as Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15, Moses records to the people of Israel what the Lord God said to him. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. So Moses predicts that God in the future will raise up another prophet like Moses. The people must listen to him. Verse 19, whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so turn to, turn to John chapter one. Um, there's a great expectation. They weren't entirely sure we this side of the cross, understand that the prophet is the king, is the son. That wasn't as clear to them, but what is clear is that they are expecting this prophet to come. They're looking for this prophet. In John chapter 1, verse 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Okay, what prophet? Deuteronomy 18, the prophet. So they're expecting a prophet to come. Now, now go to Luke chapter 9. Remember, 
While you turn, I'll read again what Moses said. The Lord will raise up from you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke 9, who appears to Jesus but Moses and Elijah? In verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came overshadowing them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. That's the connection. Here's the, the father going on. This is the prophet like Moses. He's standing next to Moses. <laughs> Moses was talking to him a few minutes ago. Listen to him. So Luke has identified Jesus in his gospel as the prophet. And so I think there's great dramatic irony that he wants us to see here. The reader, Jesus is being mocked and ridiculed over his impotence as a prophet. If you're such a great prophet, tell us which one of us is beating you. Jesus isn't suckered into that game. He's too busy shepherding Peter. But we, the readers, see this is indeed God's great prophet like Moses. This is the one who predicted with absolute precision what Peter would do. This is the one in control of what's going on. And so I think it's absolutely wonderful that while Jesus himself is bearing the insults and the reproaches of us and people, including Peter, I mean, there's a real further irony. Jesus reproaches and insults and beatings. He's receiving on behalf of Peter and other people. And is Peter faithful? No. Does Peter abide with him through this trial? No. Does Jesus remain faithful? You bet he does. And even as Peter is failing in his faith, our Lord is concerned to bring him to repentance. Our Lord is taking the measures of what he can do, even if it's just a a look, some eye contact. Because Peter needs to remember what our Lord said. Peter needs to repent so that Peter can be restored, so that Peter can strengthen the brethren. Our Lord is functioning as the great prophet and priest and king of his people, even as he is mocked and derided. Because our Savior is great. And ultimately, Peter is restored, and Luke wants us to see that not because of his own greatness, but because of the faithfulness of his Savior I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we close in prayer. Our our confidence, like Peter's, is not in our own strength. Our confidence, like Peter's, is not the power of our strength. If we boast in the power of our own strength, we just sound like Peter. Our confidence is that our great Savior, our great High Priest, our great Shepherd, will not let us go. He will not let us slip through His hands but he will indeed hold us fast.